All right, well, welcome. Good morning, Bedrock Church. You can be seated. My name is Brian, but you guys all know that. So um, good to see you guys and uh, to worship together this morning. That's actually one of my, uh, my faves, that song there. So uh, it's a blessing to, to worship together. Um, I guess just a few things. Uh, one, hope you guys are enjoying the summer. The weather today, I walked out to, after our AC was out. I mean, I was like, Drew's helping me last night put in an AC unit. That weather... It feels great, the, the little breeze. So enjoy it today. Um, but we have uh, just a few things to, to, as reminders. Uh, we had a membership meeting um, two weeks ago, and I know everybody's traveling in the summer, so I just wanted to throw it out there. If you have questions about that, um, want more info, want to know how to take the next steps in that, uh, just reach out to me and Drew. We can help with that. But just wanted to, to, to remind that if you have your, your sheet this morning um, from... Uh, the documents we had, you can bring that to us, but just excited to continue to take those steps as a church family. Um, yeah, and then the host homes. So uh, we talked about that last week. Uh, if you have questions about how we can continue to like be part of that, it's an upcoming event. It's August the 26th. Is that right? Does anybody remember this 27th? Okay, so it's a Friday night where um, in our community, we're able to actually uh, sign up to, to have a table, to have refreshments and a good time, invite our neighbors, they'll, they'll provide flyers. So if you, if you want to hear more about that, let us know. But um, just a reminder, if you want to sign up for that, we can get you the, the sign up for that. Um, and then lastly, we did want to update you, uh, as we talk about the book of Acts and the gospel moving forward, uh, it, was ex- it was exciting for me to think about how um, today we talk about Nicaragua and we're so used to like taking trips uh, with our, our home church in Lynchburg and we're used to like being able to go to other countries and, and know that like there's missionaries and, and God's moving and there's still places all around the world where we're, we're praying for that but in the book of Acts uh, there's a shift in what we're seeing in, the, in chapter 7 there's like there's a shift from um, just this Jewish um, faith uh, to to really shifting to like the whole world, and we're going to start to see the gospel break forward. Um, and so I was just think about that as we talk about Nicaragua. Nicaragua, we're so used to that, but we're we've, we're going to be able to see it play out, um, and uh, hopefully that encourages us that the gospel moves forward. But we are going to be moving um, our our trip to January. So wanted to let everybody know that um, if you if maybe that makes it. Uh, now an opportunity for you to take the trip. Um, great. Let us know. We'll, we'll have more information meetings coming up, but it'll probably be the second or third week in January. Um, and, and I think that's going to be a great time of year to go. Reason being is uh, the country is uh, has a lot of like political uh, and uh, with COVID, a lot of unstableness right now, the way like the government has kind of marked it as a don't travel here. Um, and so we've been weighing that, talking with Donald, uh, the missionary there. Um, but yeah, we're going to push that trip off. We're excited to go in January. Uh, if you have questions about that, let us know. Uh, but I wanted to take some time and pray for them today. Uh, it's an incredible ministry. Donald Gillette and his wife there um, and many others. Pastor Ray, uh, if you can remember that name, Pastor Ray, we want to pray for him and the other pastors that um, are, are committed to the gospel there in Nicaragua, the believers um, there is a sense of, of persecution, of um, a lack of openness to Christianity during this kind of unstable time. So we're going to pray for them this morning um, and, and just pray that God continues to encourage them during a time where maybe there's less travel to visit, encourage them. Uh, maybe some are facing just extra pressure that they wouldn't have before. Um, and it, the ministry is called Because We Care Ministries. So if you want to remember that as well, but let's pray over that and just in general, be excited about um, the way that even, even when a, a country says, hey, we're close to travel or uh, a government, uh, like our government encourages not to, like, I just I see time and time again, God uses um, his people and, and the, the, the gospel, even despite uh, government's best attempts. And that's what we're seeing in the book of Acts. So let's pray today. God, um, we are just uh, so, so thankful to be in this place together, to, um, to know that, that there's one purpose that we can come together this morning, and that's to your glory. 
and that you are so worthy of, of us belting out um, our worship, of us, um, Lord, just taking a moment, Lord, like we are now and, and reflecting, Lord, all the things that we've carried in from the week to this moment, uh, if we've forgotten how good you are, uh, Lord, to be able just to, to be with the family of God and, and remember that uh, there is a, a movement, that you are um, the head of that movement, and that you uh, most importantly love us um, enough to um, send Jesus uh, and to give us life and relationship. And, and we long for that for, for this city of Fishtown and all around the world. And, and God, as a movement, as we see in the book of Acts, shifts from um, uh, Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost, God, we're so thankful that uh, you've, you've allowed your gospel to reach us over the years. And we pray for Nicaragua as you continue, Lord. We're excited about the, the villages that hear the gospel for the first time. We're excited about the pastors that um, are so dedicated to um, just, just learning your word and continuing to lead and shepherd uh, for each believer there. We want to just pray for them as uh, it's, it's an unstable time and uh, there's, there's a lot going on with their government and, and with COVID. It's just all at one time. And uh, I think in many ways, um, Lord, that was this past year here. And, and so we just pray for that, that country. We pray for Pastor Ray. We pray for uh, Donald and Pam. We pray for, for all involved um, in the church there that you would, you would bring encouragement, that you would bring your, your peace and presence. And God, you would be glorified through their perseverance um, and that you would definitely bless um, our trip as we get ready to um, plan that here in January that we would be able to go and, and really just be encouraged, be uh, challenged, be a help as much as we can. Um, and so may you receive the glory today through the message, uh, Acts chapter 7, a story of Stephen. And uh, Lord, may you just continue to help us be sensitive and aware and, and listening to your spirit. We love you. In your name, amen. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Good, yes. I see some of you who participated in um, the water gun battle yesterday, and uh, it was a good time. Uh, like Brian said, I'm enjoying the summer. Love it. Um, my name is Drew. I am one of the elders here. It's my honor to be bringing the word this morning. Um, we're going to continue in our uh, power formation movement series out of the book of Acts. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter Seven. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you need one, we have them available for you out in the lobby. Um, last week, oh, come on. Uh, it just says document deleted, so we're going to see what we can do here. Uh, <laughs> last week, uh, we, we covered Stephen and the seven that were chosen to serve. Um, and we had a long conversation about uh, the Hellenists and, in particular, what, is it, what was it going on in the ancient world up until this moment? Uh, and so we talked about, man, what is it marginalized people that are within the church and what does it look like for us to recognize those people because God has always called us to, bo- to move towards those people. And we see that in, in particular with Jesus and his ministry. Um, with, with Stephen, we have a man that has a unique description. So um, in Acts 6 verse 5, it says, when they chose Stephen, that he was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Um, he's one of these seven men, in cho- men chosen, and uh, he has this description, and it's there for a reason, and it's almost just like a foreshadowing of Stephen's role and uh, the role that he's going to play in the story. He is the catalyst. That's what Stephen is in this story, which, um, which is very important. So I'm always thinking, maybe because we played basketball yesterday, um, my team won, which was great, uh, but we, uh, I'm always thinking in terms of, of sports and basketball. We're going to a Phillies game later today, so excited about that. Um, so when you think of basketball, I can throw these names out. Um, Michael Jordan, um, LeBron James, maybe Kevin Durant, Steph Curry. Who would say they know all of those people? Raise their hands. Yeah, you're like, all right, those people. Um, so do you know who this is? Yes, that's Patrick Beverly. Um, so the thing about 
Patrick Beverly is, you probably aren't aware of who he is, so it's pretty, it's pretty normal. Um, he doesn't score much. Uh, he um, probably oftentimes doesn't even start on the team that he plays, but all of those guys that I listed are well aware of who he is. Um, and the reason is because Patrick Beverly is the catalyst. That's what he is on a team. So he was asked one time, uh, Patrick, why do you play with a chip on your shoulder? And his response was, uh, I think that some people call it a chip. Uh, mine was more like a mountain. Uh, he has an edge to him. They call him Mr. 94 feet. So the court is 94 feet long. And so they say his defense covers the entire court when he's out there. And he has an edge to him that's unique. So this is a picture of him guarding Kevin Durant. That's at half court. Um, so I don't know if that means anything to you, <laughs> but I've never guarded anyone that close. There's something that he grew up in. I just I learned about Patrick Beverly this week. He grew up in West Philly, and the school that he grew up in, they said, was they just called it the little prison because it was just a rough, rough spot. West Chicago. Did I say West Philly? I'm used to saying West Philly. He grew up in West Chicago. Um, and so he's been moved to team from team, but he is the guy that on a championship team, he's the dude that you're going to look at and be like, you know, he's, he's not the guy that gets the interview after the game. He's not the guy that everybody talks about. But when it really comes down to it, that dude, if they would not have won if he wasn't there, he's the spark. Like he changes the game when he steps in. He's a crucial part. So when I think about Stephen, um, he plays that role. He's not Peter. Um, he is not Paul, certainly not Christ. And when you look at like even the story of Moses and Abraham that we're going to talk about today, and you're going to look at all these different players in the, the narrative of Scripture, and he doesn't have this like long story drawn out. Let's talk all about Stephen's life. We really know very little about him, but he comes in like a firecracker, and he is a spark that is absolutely needed. He plays a crucial role. He's a catalyst. And so we see, we see these descriptions about him. He was a man that was full of faith in the Holy Spirit, grace and power. Wis he had wisdom from the Spirit. He was certainly a turning point in the story. And there's three times throughout the book of Acts that you see Luke point back to this moment with Stephen as that turning point. So in Acts 1-4, it says that they, they buried a devout man, Stephen, um, and they lamented over him. And it actually says they arose from that day, persecuted against the church, and they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. In Acts eleven nineteen, it says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. And then Acts twenty two twenty, it says, even in the end, they're pointing back. And it says, when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing and approving and watching over the garments. And that's Paul pointing all the way back and saying, like almost assuming, you remember Stephen? Because everyone knows what happened to Stephen. There's, he was a catalyst. He was, this, he was this spark where everything was laid and ready to be, the movement was ready to begin and there needed to be a spark. And God placed Stephen. It's not the story that we often want, but it's the story that was needed at the moment. Um, I'm excited to talk about him today. So Acts chapter 7, um, we're going to start in verse 51. So it's a lot to read, um, so we're not going to read all of it. Uh, I'm going to tell the story, but we're just going to read um, the part that we're going to discuss the most. So 51 to 60 says this. He says, you stiff-necked people... <laughs> Good start. Um, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open up, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, stomping, their fe stomping um, and 
Stopping their ears and rushing together at him, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had, when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Father, today we, um, we witness your servant, Stephen. Lord, again, we look at this story and, Lord, we see your divine plan. We see that you're sovereign. Father, we see that you can use persecution in incredible ways. But even in all of this, Lord, we look at, we look at death and we, um, Lord, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to know that Lord, there's, even though there can be real separation in this world, um, Father, that because of you, Lord, that we have victory. Death has lost its sting. Lord, that, Lord, that we are more than conquerors in all things, including death. And so, Lord, I, I pray that today, as, as we look at the reality um, in this life of death, that we would look at, look at it through the lens of the cross, Lord, that we would see that Jesus is sufficient um, in everything. Lord, I pray that you would again use Stephen's story written by Luke um, to, Lord, to change our hearts. Lord, to remind us once again what you've called us to. Um, Lord, I pray that your word and your spirit would speak truth to us today. In your name, amen. All right, so um, the words that we just read were um, strong to say the least. Let's, uh, let's see how we got there. So Stephen, after we, the last place we left him was he was one of these seven men that were chosen. Um, so he's put in this position of, of leadership. But we see very quickly with Stephen is that um, he plays other roles. Um, one of those is that uh, he apparently has a pretty significant theological prowess, if you will. This guy knows what he's talking about, um, which is important because, oh, just side note, I think oftentimes we associate someone that understands and knows the word is the one that proclaims it and preaches it. And while I think as an elder, that's really important. What you're going to see throughout the book of Acts is that there's people that are placed in positions of leadership within the church that have the same responsibility to know the word and proclaim the word. And so you see this with Stephen as he's leading out and serving tables. He's also going to the synagogue of the free man. We talked a little bit about this last week where the synagogue of the free man was those that were in the dispersion. Um, there's now a community of them living right outside of Jerusalem, so much so that there needed to be a place of worship. And that was where Stephen found himself. And he's there and he's teaching and he's teaching about Christ. Well, teaching is, is one thing. They actually say that he's, um, that he's more so arguing, um, debating. And so you have these religious leaders um, in the moment arguing with him. And, and what it says is that they, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So not only is he saying, making an argument, but he's, he's actually making a lot of progress, so much so that they're like, we can't withstand what he's saying, so we need another route. So they, they did. Um, they, they came up with, with another plan. Their plan was then to stir up the people. Um, this may sound familiar. Uh, and we're going to talk about this at some point, but what you see between um, the trial of Jesus and what you see with Stephen are awfully similar, um, where you have these leaders that begin to sow lies in the ears of the people that are around them, and they stir up the people. And what they said was, we have heard him blaspheming against Moses and God. He is trying to change the customs that Moses delivered. They point to Moses. And the next thing that we read is that Stephen, as they then take him from the synagogue and they place him in front of, again, this, the Sanhedrin, these leaders, these Jewish leaders that are in Jerusalem, the same leaders that Jesus stood before, he's standing in front of them. And the next thing that happens is that his face begins to glow like an angel. And you're, you're like, man, that is, I mean, just as someone that's just reading the story for what it is, you're like, that's incredible. I don't know that I've seen that. Um, I, I think 
naturally you would, you would think, well, that's obviously the presence of, of the Lord. That's obviously something that's unique. God's obviously doing something to display physically that he affirms Stephen in his ministry right here. Which, which is true, but I think what makes this so significant is because of their accusation. What did they say? They said that Stephen was blaspheming Moses and the law that had been delivered to him. And if you think about the story and the narrative that they should have been well aware of, like they should know and they do know very, very well, their own history. The only other time that we see someone glowing like this is when you have Moses that encountered the presence of God and he came down off the mountain of Sinai and he delivered to them the law and he was glowing. And then you see Moses that goes into the tabernacle and he would come out and his face would be veiled because he was glowing. And it's this symbol of just... God's presence on someone. And they're saying, well, he's, he's changing the customs of Moses, and at the same time, his face is glowing. And there should be something in them that's just like, that's, I can't explain that. You know, I can't explain that. There should be some kind of submission to the truth even in that moment. Even if I don't understand, this man's face is glowing and what he's proclaiming, it, man, it's, should I at least question if it's of the Lord? But there was none of that. There was none of that. It was anger. David Peterson says it this way. He says, Moses, full of grace and wisdom and power. He says, it's possible that there is, there's a link here between Moses' shining face and Exodus 34. Stephen spoke calmly as one who saw the glory of Christ, who was filled with his spirit and who appeared to be his authorized witness and messenger. He sees this as some symbol of authorization. And so I think he says that Stephen spoke calmly. At some point, Stephen gets riled up, but yes, he starts calm. Um, the first thing that we're going to see here is that Jesus redefines our past. So our first point today, as Stephen goes into his story, is that Jesus redefines our past. And he's led into that by the question of the high priest where he says, are these things so? So the accusation about Moses and about the temple, and they just ask him, is this, is this true? Is this true what you're saying? Jesus redefines our past. So I've read this story multiple times. I think a lot of us have read it multiple times. And oftentimes it's about um, just persecution, which I do think that's obviously the central focus. But I think this first point, would, um, as, as I read it this past week, that my first, my, honestly, one of the things that I've missed in the past, I think, is what was Stephen trying to say to the, to the leaders? Like, what was he actually trying to communicate? Not just what was the end product, but what was his goal? What was he saying? And it's almost like he, Stephen, um, who again is a Hellenist, um, and so would, would have been viewed as a lesser in the Jewish community, um, now is the one that is about to give this history lesson to the Jewish leaders on their own lineage. Um, have, you guys ever, um, have you guys ever been on Ancestry.com? Yay? Nay? Do you know anyone that has been on Ancestry.com? Do you guys have a family member? Yeah. <laughs> there's, oftentimes there's some, like one person in the family that's like obsessed with the family tree. And I think that's why Ancestry.com still has, they have this market because there's always that one person um, because every family has a story, uh, which is their slogan. So I got that straight from their website. <laughs> Uh, but that, that person's often very just obsessed with it. They're sending facts to, they're sending out emails just like, hey, did you know this about our family? Uh, and I, I think the reason is because it's fascinating. It's fascinating to learn where you came from um, because I, I think maybe, maybe at, our, at our core we believe if we understand a little bit more about where we're from and, and we apply it to our lives, that it can actually have an impact on our present or maybe explain a couple things. Um, so if you're like, man, my, my great-great-grandfather was a cobbler in England. Maybe that's why I like Nike so much. I don't know. My, my, grandma, my grandmother was an orphan, and she grew up in a tortilla factory. Maybe that's why I think everything's better in a tortilla. I don't know. Or because it's true. Um, 
But yeah, there's, there's something about us that just links this where we're trying to understand how does our past connect to our future? And I think it's a very American thing to think, like to honestly, to even not know. <laughs> because we're, we are truly a nation of just immigrant people. And so oftentimes those stories get lost where um, in other places they're much more connected to their past. But here there's a market for like, hey, you don't know where you came from. Good. Everybody else doesn't either. So help, let me help you figure it out. And we learn things about ourselves. Um, what we see with the Jewish people is, is that their lineage, um, while yes, it was important for them to understand it because they wanted it to impact the present, um, their lineage actually was, it was significantly more than that. Um, for them and the Jewish people, it was all tied back to their father, Abraham, right? And from where Stephen's going to walk through all of this, but because their lineage, their family tree connected them to Abraham, it was not just, it didn't just change their last name, it actually changed their future. Like it determined where they would be. And so to speak about who they were and to speak about, um, to speak um, ill against their family tree or their lineage or where they came from was actually to speak about where they were going. And it was offensive, highly, highly offensive to suggest that you weren't part of that. So in this moment, we need to just paint the picture of you now have, again, this lower level Jew explaining to everyone exactly the reality of their family lineage, what it really means. And he starts with Abraham. Um, and I love that he just begins to walk right through the whole story. It's the longest speech that we have in the entire book of Acts, where he starts with Abraham and he says, your father, and he says, actually he says, our father. He says, our father, Abraham. And he talks about the covenant that God gave him. And he says that covenant was sealed with a, a physical representation of it, which was circumcision. And then we see the, it, that promise begin to play out through Isaac. And then from Isaac, we have, we have Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And these 12 sons, one of them was Joseph. He was the favorite. And Joseph was then sold into slavery in Egypt. And they were in Egypt for over 400 years. And that's also part of the promise that God said would happen. And so they get this place of prominence. The nation of Israel gets this place of prominence in Egypt, and numerically they just grow. But then because of that growth, the leaders in Egypt begin to, they begin to suppress them, and so there's this enslavement that happens to the people. And it says that God was going to raise up someone from within them, and Moses, Moses comes along. Moses has this moment where he leaves, but God sends him back, right? And, and he raises up Moses, and, and Moses brings them out of Egypt and into the wilderness to this land that they were always promised. And God says through Moses that he was going to raise up a, a righteous prophet, speaking about Jesus. And he's standing here in front of the Sanhedrin explaining to them their whole family history. Man, this is what's coming, and that, that righteous prophet he's going to reveal is going to be Christ. You've missed this. And then from there, they go to Joshua. And Joshua is the one that actually leads them into the promised land, but he talks about this rebellion. Like there was a season where the people of God abandoned God. They've rejected him. They rejected Moses and his teachings. They built false idols. And even when they made it to the promised land, there's this season of where, where there's these judges that God raises up and it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then from there, there's, this, there's these kings. Most prominently would have been David, where you see God, a man after God's own heart, God grow the kingdom. And you see David, like his heart is to rebuild this temple. Ultimately, Solomon is the one that's able to do it, his son. And, and Stephen stops there. And this is, this is significant. So all the way up into this point, what you see in this story is that as he's telling the story, Stephen is saying, our fathers, our, our people, this covenant that is, that is ours, and something changes in verse 51. In verse 51, Stephen changes our to you, and it says, you stiff-necked people, 
uncircumcised and hardened ears, you resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which the prophets did in your fathers, your fathers did not persecute, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law and delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen has changed. Like, he's, he's, he's acknowledging his past, but he's in that moment, he's creating this separation where he's saying, this is, these are our fathers. These are our people. They rejected God, and you are doing the same. And so what Stephen is saying in this moment is that even though our pasts are the same, our future is different because of Jesus. I'm, I'm not rejecting the righteous one. That's on your hands. And so as I thought about that, I thought, man, what that means for us is that Stephen has this moment where as he encounters the righteous one, the promised Messiah, he believes him to be the Messiah. Jesus then not only changes what he does that day, he not only changes his future, but Jesus, as he looks back at his story, changes everything, like redefines everything about his past. Absolutely everything. And... I think it's helpful for us to consider. I, I mean, I, um, I mean there, there's little ways that these, that these things happen. I asked Christina if I could share this, but I walked in here on Saturday and Christina's getting ready for her Bollywood dance class. <laughs> and uh, you know, knowing a little bit of her story, I, I'm just, just asking her, you know, what, when did you start doing this? She was like, when I was a little girl, you know? Um, and it's just been something that me and my family has always done. And I'm like, man, it's incredible that God's using you right now, and he's using that. And she was like, yeah, you know, it, I, I, she's, I clearly see that this is why I have always been passionate about this. And that's, I think that's part of it, is that you look at Stephen, and he begins to see that, like, God was doing things long before the gospel arrived in Stephen's life, long before Jesus even arrived to show him exactly who God is. You begin to see that, like, God's using you from the beginning and he's shaping you um so you begin to see that the story ultimately really isn't about you you see that god is the one that created you you see that god's the one that sustains you you see that even in your um even in your disobedience and your rebellion god is the one that is going to sustain you through that and, and you see this moment in the end where god actually reveals to you through the lens of the cross everything that he's been doing and so I know, that, um, I know that we can carry our past. Um, I just know that for my own life. I know that in um, just talking to, to our people, um, if you've ever been in discipleship where you're in this setting where you get to know someone and know, someone knows you, it doesn't take long for someone to say, hey, this is my story. And, and you can very quickly understand, like, see what parts of, of, of your life that you have allowed the gospel to speak into your past and what parts you have not. Even as a follower of Christ, you still hold on to this as if God hasn't redeemed that also. And so, just like Stephen, I think one of the things that we can draw from this is that we can say, you know what, we, we aren't, we're not rejecting God. And as a result of that, we can look at our past and say, God is sufficient in all things. Like, my past is not what defines me. I'm defined by who Jesus is. I'm defined as a follower of Christ. And that changes who I am today. It changes the decisions that I'm going to make. So the first thing that we see is that Jesus redefines our past. And so the question that has to be asked is, are you rejecting Jesus today? Um, like we said, there's, there's so much evidence for the leaders in this moment to turn um, from rejecting Christ and to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Um, and, they, and they refuse to do so. And so you'll see, we'll see Stephen's heart even in, even in the final moments where he still continues to pray for them. That's what he wants is to see that happen. And so the first question we have to ask is, man, are we rejecting Christ today? Would our life in every way show that we, are, we have accepted Jesus as our leader, um, as our savior? And then 
Also, if you have, um, if, if you have accepted Christ, what, is, what does that look like in your life? Are you following Christ? Are you, are you defined by your past? I think these are questions that I want us to process together. Um, in DNA group, as you're in your missional communities, this week especially, I think it'd be a good time to just talk about, man, these are some of the things from my past I just want to put on the table and say, I haven't allowed the gospel to speak truth into this. Um, and I, I would love for our people through the word and through the Holy Spirit to begin to speak the truth of Jesus and his redemptive story over that. He restores, he redefines our past. So the second thing that we see is that Jesus gives us purpose in the present. So something we've seen as we walk through the book of Acts is that if you can see anything from the beginning, um, at, the, at the ascension, um, where Jesus then sends his disciples, the picture then is not that we are going to pick up this kingdom and figure it out ourselves. If we see anything through all the different things that talked about what the church is, whether it's healings and miracles, whether it's prayer, whether it's time with the Lord, whether it's the fellowship of the believers, the ministry of Jesus hasn't stopped. It's only grown. And it's important to acknowledge, and the reason isn't because we're better at it. <laughs> it's not true. The reason is because God sent his spirit in his people, a redeemed people. And so Jesus always promised that there would be greater things and it was better for him to leave. And so you see this where the ministry of Jesus continues. The teachings continue, the miracles continue, the fellowship continues, the growth continues, and the persecution continues. And we should expect it to continue. We should expect nothing less. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25 says it this way. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So you see this example. Um, that we have in Christ. Primarily, I mean, the, the example that they point to here is the cross. There's this persecution that happens of Jesus. And what we see all throughout the New Testament, we see explicitly in this passage, is that that's what we should expect. You know, as followers of Jesus, to expect that we would receive the same treatment that the world has given to, to Christ, would, that would make sense. And that's what we've been promised. Yet, there's this peace in the midst of all of that. Talk about the peace that Jesus has. It says, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to the judge who judges justly. Um, I, don't, I don't know. We're going to talk about one of the things that I've been having a hard time just processing is that um, oppression looks different. You know, you look at the story of Stephen and there's almost this disconnect where he's just like, I don't know, I don't even know how to process that in the world that I live in. Um, but one of the things that we, we are going to see is that what we're held accountable to, no matter what it looks like in our, in our life, is that we are to also entrust ourselves to the judge who judges justly. That's our role in all of this is that as oppression comes, as you're threatened, um, as persecution comes, our role in this, this entire thing is to entrust ourselves to God. And we see Jesus do this over and over and over again. This is why you see Jesus on the cross with his, his final words where he, where he says, Lord, Lord, accept me. And then, and then you, have, um, you have Stephen, even in his final prayer, he's like, Lord, accept my soul, my spirit. Um, there's, even to, the, even to his last breath, um, he is entrusting himself to the Lord in this thing that was going to be, it's promised. Jesus um, said, this, this, this scene in particular with Stephen is, um, 
it happens in a similar fashion multiple times throughout the New Testament. But what you see um, with Jesus in, in particular is that he promised that this would happen, and it plays out very clearly here. Um, in Luke 21, 12 through 19, it says, But before all, all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. If that isn't like a summary of what just took place. It's exactly what just happened. This is, um, this is what is to be expected as followers of Jesus. And it's, it's the cost. It's counting the cost. It's, um, and I, I think I myself am guilty of this, and, and I see it in ourself, in just within our body and, and it just as, as believers that um, oftentimes we still feel like surprised when that cost comes up. Like there's still something in us that's like, but I can't, like I can't possibly be called to endure this. Um, and what, what we see from Jesus is exactly what we're called to. Um, it's almost like, I'm just trying to think of how, it's almost like, like signing on to the mortgage of a home and being surprised when the first month shows up, you know? <laughs> And you're just like, oh, I don't have to actually have to pay this thing, right? Um, there's something about like following Jesus. He's paid all of it. But what happens when we follow Christ is we get treated the same way. And that's part of it. That's part of the glory that we get to partake in is the sufferings that we have in this world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the cost of discipleship. Um, he says it like this. When he's talking about the suffering um, in our present time, I'm trying to bring it into like um, to the present day uh, and so that we can understand it. He says it like this. He says, the messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of time. They will be blamed for all the divisions which rend cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining family life, for leading, to, leading the nation astray, they will be called crazy fanatics, disturbers of the peace. The disciples will be sorely tempted to desert the Lord. But the end is also near, and they must hold on and persevere until it comes. Only he will he bless who remains loyal to Jesus in his word until the end. Um, I think that, that's part of it. We believe something um, that is considered offensive in this world, not just in Fishtown, um, in this world. We believe a gospel that was offensive from the moment that it arrived, um, that the king of this world, the devil, has, has, um, has doing everything that he can to break down any kind of kingdom growth um, through the gospel that he can. He does it through sowing lies. He does it through anger. Oftentimes it results in real persecution. Um, are you guys collectors? Do you guys collect anything? Everyone's like, someone's like got a secret coin collection right now. They're like, yes, guilty. Um, I, uh, I'm not a collector, but I had a, uh, I had a friend's dad when I was a kid that was a collector and he used to collect everything. Um, whether it was like Teletubbies, no, not Teletubbies. Um, it was Beanie Babies, that's it. See, I don't know these things. Um, Beanie Babies, uh, it was like cards, Pokemon. Um, I wrote some of those, but just like odd things. I remember walking into this basement and being like, what is going on down here? Um, he was also the guy that would, that would copy all of the VHSs from Blockbuster, so you would walk into this closet and there was a room full of copied and I was just like, this guy's so guilty. Um, he was just a straight, he was just an oddball. But he was on to something because he saw value um, in something that a lot of people didn't. And as I was looking online, like what things are valuable now, and you're just like, I'm like looking at this, I'm like, it's his list. Like this dude somewhere is just filthy rich because he has just collected all of these things. 
Uh, and I, I think what you see with that is that there's this, um, there's this radical, radical um, cost that we see in, in, with, to our life. But we also see with, through the gospel, through the lens of the gospel, what Stephen realizes in this moment is not that his life is any less valuable. Actually, he realizes that it was more valuable than he ever could have imagined. Like, it's just, like, through the lens of Jesus, his life and his death have become incredibly valuable to him. And so the temptation is to look at this and be like, man, it's almost reckless. But I would argue that it's the exact opposite, that he has had a perspective shift in his mind and his heart and in his life where he now sees that the greatest thing that he can use, this valuable thing that he's been given, which is his life and his death, and he can use it for a greater purpose, an eternal purpose in the kingdom. And so for us, I, I, I know that like it's, it's tempting for us to look at this and be like, I guess it means that we're just supposed to be reckless. And I'm like, no, it doesn't necessarily mean we're supposed to be reckless. I don't think that's what we see in Stephen at all. What, it, what, it, what we see is that we are supposed to consider the value of our own life and our own death and say, Lord, what would you have me do with it? Like, what would you have me do with this? It should change the way that we make every decision. It should change the way that we eat, the way that we think. It should change the place that we live. It should change everything about us. We realize we've been given an incredible gift, but we've got, an also, we've got a, a Lord also that shows us exactly what it was meant for. So with Stephen, there's this moment where, sure, he walks confidently into a place where he knows he is going to be, something is going to happen. I don't know that he, he knows he's going to be killed. But what he's seen up until this point, for the other people that have been in here, even just in the book of Acts, is that first they were warned, then they were flogged, and now he's stoned. And so the hostility towards the gospel is increasing more and more. And Stephen confidently walks in and says, Lord, if this is where you would have me spend my death, then it must be. I'm okay with that. I'm all right with that. And, and so he moves forward confidently. He has a purpose now for his life. What are you spending your life on? What decisions are you making to avoid this suffering? And where is God calling you to radical obedience? Third thing that we see, the final thing that we see is that Jesus secures our future. Let's look at their response. It says, um, starting at verse 54, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. Um, I, I do not know what that means. Um, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He says, Behold, I have seen the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at his right hand, which is extremely offensive because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So now he's proclaiming Jesus is resurrected and he's standing at the right hand of God. Not only saying that it's true, but he's saying he sees it. Obviously, extremely offensive. And so they, they then, um, I guess the best way that I could explain it, begin to act like children. Um, they cast him into the, out, um, out of the city and they stone him. Um, they cried with a loud voice together. They stomp their feet and they rush at him. I mean, I don't know. I think that's like, uh, I think Annabeth and Josephine stopped doing that three years ago. Um, but he then has these two final prayers. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then also, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. As he's dying, um, death is... Um, it's a lot of things. Um, I think in this world, as we look at, as we just, as we perceive death as humans in, in this world, it's final. Um, we see death as something that is um, painful, not just for the individual, but for, for, for a lot of people. And I think one of the key things that we see with death is that it creates separation. Um, and I think in my own life, um, I've experienced that with uh, a friend that I did his funeral, um, overdosed on, on drugs right before we got, as we came into Philadelphia, um, and I've experienced it with my brother. And it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain to someone unless they've really experienced it, um, what it means, what it feels like to lose the person that is um, closest to you. 
Um, separation is a, is a real thing, and I think with every passing day, oftentimes it just feels weightier. Um, God's good in those, and, and he continues to work through that, and he takes on the burden ultimately, but I can't dismiss the weight. I'll never forget that feeling. Um, and it really ultimately because the, is because of the finality of it and, and because of separation. Um, and I think nowhere really depicts this better than um, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, in John chapter 11, uh, it's Martha, uh, the sister of, of Lazarus that runs to him. And it says, uh, in chapter 11, starting at 21, it says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So she has this moment where she's like, I conf- I'm, I'm still confident in you, Lord. Like, you can do this. And Jesus answers her, and he says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And this is where we see Mar- Martha begin to falter just a little bit, um, where she's like, I'm tired of hearing that. Like, I don't want to hear that. Of course he's going to rise again. He's going to rise again. He ha- she has this understanding of the resurrection, resurrected body. And she's like, I understand he's going to rise again, but you can read between the lines and see, but what about today? Like, what about now? You know, I feel the weight of this loss right now. Um, and, and Jesus then says to her, he says, Martha, and she says, I, I, know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Um, and Jesus doesn't dismiss the resurrection. He doesn't say there's not going to be a resurrection. What he says is, I am the resurrection. Like, you are misunderstanding, Martha, who is standing before you. Like, you're not understanding the power that is in these hands, you know? You do not know who I am, Martha. You don't know that I have the authority. I have the authority to call him out of the grave now. Death is in my hands. It's, it's mine. And, and I think what we see, Martha, she... She submits to Jesus in that moment. She says, I believe who you are. I believe that you're the Christ. I believe that you're the Son of God. And we see this even, the reason that that's important with Stephen is because it has to be told. Like, we have to recognize that what happens to Stephen in this moment, while there is separation and there's a cost to be paid and it's a real sacrifice, what enables Stephen to be here is that he knows that his future is secure. Jesus has conquered death. It's complete. It's done. And through the cross and through the resurrection, there is no longer any fear that we need to have for that. The way that it's said in, um, in Romans 8, 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are, re- we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquer- conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, get this, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So while there may be this temporary separation, there is joy in knowing that separation is not something we will ever experience between us and the Lord, ever. As a follower of Jesus, that price has been paid. It's done. And so while Stephen is in a moment where there is real risk, where there is um, real pain that he's enduring, says in 1 Corinthians, it says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us victory through Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have victory over these things. It's incredible to be able to stand here and say, even in death, even in a separation that feels um, so permanent, that there's hope. There's real hope. There's a secure future. And so I, I think that that can, that can produce a lot of things in our life. Um, one of the things that I think um, Jesus tries to portray to his followers often is, if, if that's true, then why do you worry so much? <laughs> you know? If that's true, then why are you anxious? As though you can add a single day onto your life. I'm caring for you. I have taken everything, including including death. I have taken everything on. Why are you worried about the things of today? And, and even the persecution that we're going to face. Because it'll happen. Even as we face in this world, um, as we confidently move towards Fishtown, as we confidently move towards Philadelphia, and whatever God has called us to in this city, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be spiritual battles. Um, there's going to be physical battles in the sense that there's going to be people that physically um, are opposed to the church and the gospel. Um, but there's hope in the midst of all of this. And even in, even in death, there's, there's life and there's hope through the cross. Um, so I wanted to ask these three final questions. Um, as the band comes up, what time is it? Yep. Um, as the band comes up, we saw that Jesus redefines our past. Jesus gives us purpose in the present, and he's, Jesus secures our future. Um, I, I think uh, we've been trying to, add, we've just trying to respond from feedback as to like what, what's helpful and questions are helpful. So some of these, you may find that like one of them is helpful. That's totally fine. Take one of 10. That's great. Um, but I think some questions that we could ask is how has the gospel changed how you see your past? How has the gospel changed how you see your past? Um, how does the gospel give clarity to your purpose and how is suffering included in that? Um, and then finally, how does, how does the hope that we have in Christ change how we see death? Um, the, the movement have, has begun. Um, it, it began, honestly, with Jesus and the cross, but in, in, for the sake of our, our series, um, which is severely less important, um, this is, this is where we see that spark, that catalyst. We see that moment where um, you'd seen Jesus um, through his disciples. You see the power arrive, and then, and then you see this power be displayed through the formation of a church. And in Acts 1-8, um, if you think all the way back, it said that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Um, and just a little helpful tidbit, Acts 1-8 is that. I think, I don't know, I think God does these things sometimes. But if you look at Acts 8-1, um, the next thing that we see is that, and Saul approved of the, uh, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So you have this, this command to go, and then you have this moment where through persecution, there's growth. God takes even these pain, this pain in, that we'll experience in this world, and he doesn't waste these things. They're purposeful. It's important to remember. Um, and you see that through persecution, there is ascending. Um, maybe it wasn't how they thought it would be. Oftentimes it's not. <laughs> um, but there is a clear sending to Judea and Samaria, two of the places that are clearly outlined that were next, that God was calling his people. So the movement and the church begins to go. I'm excited to talk about what that movement means um, through the rest of the church, leading all the way up into today. Um, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, you taught us um, a lot today. Um, Lord, as we look at Stephen, we see someone who um, was not reckless with their life, but counted the cost, saw the value in their life and their death, and considered that the best, the best way that it could be spent is for your kingdom and for your glory. And so, so be it. 
whatever you call us to, so be it. Lord, I pray that we would walk that way into our lives, into our homes. Lord, I pray that this would not be something that we just say in these four walls, but that this would be something that truly guides us. Lord, that, that we would not be scared of, um, Lord, of a spiritual battle that you have already won. Lord, there's victory through the cross over death. And Lord, I, I pray that that would not be something that would be a truth that is out there um, and helpful at times when we encounter death and the reality of death. But Lord, I pray that that would be a truth that would be present with us daily. Lord, that we would hold that truth dearly and that it would impact um, our anxious hearts. Lord, that it would impact um, Lord, our own desires, the way that we choose to spend our day, the things that we choose to do, the way that we interact with persecution and the way that we interact with um, any kind of oppression, Lord, that it would all be in light of victory over death. Um, Father, we, we love you and thankful for your word, thankful for your spirit, grateful for today. In your name, amen.